Yes, I know. I know everyone is disheartened, but please do not be. All is not lost. Yes, I know. You think I don't know? <laughs> you think I don't know that the Supreme Court rejected the Pennsylvania lawmaker appeal? No, I do know that. I'm acutely aware of that. But I'm telling you, notwithstanding that, all is not lost. Just calm down, and I'm going to explain why. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury with National Preview Online, and welcome to another National Preview Online podcast. If you have not already done so and you would like to subscribe to the show, please simply go to the iTunes App Store and search for NP Online. In the alternative, you can go to the Google Play Store. Actually, now it's called Google Podcast. They're in the process of changing over the Google Play Store. They have something known as Google Podcasts. If you'd like to be able to find the link to that and you're having difficulty in the Google Play Store or anyplace else and you're an Android user, please feel free to go to my Facebook page, uh, facebook.com forward slash national preview online. If you go to our page, you'll find one of the posts that I made recently um, has the link for the show. So if you just go there, you should have no difficulty. And in the alternative, if you'd prefer, you can always download the free Podbean app. And if you download the Podbean app, uh, you can subscribe that way as well. One of the things we ask you to do before we get into today's show, uh, if you'd like to help get this show promoted and hear more from us, uh, expanded offerings, maybe some guests and some more detailed information or more frequent information, uh, please write a review of the show. In the iTunes App Store, it's pretty easy. I'm not an Android user, but I know you can do the same thing uh, in the Google uh, world as well. So please write a review. Give us a five-star rating if you can, if you feel in your heart you want to do that. And make a few comments. The more reviews you get, the more quickly shows pop up in the search results when people are searching for conservative content. So all of that having been said, let's get to the problems of the day. So everybody's wondering, what does this all mean? Where does this all go? All right, so I'm going to give you a little update. Now, Judge Alito originally wanted to hear uh, from the state by Wednesday. He accelerated uh, his timetable. He wanted to hear from the state of Pennsylvania in response to the suit filed by Representative Mike Lee um, by 9 a.m. today. Why? Because in the afternoon, that's when the electors are supposedly seated, and on the 14th, they go and they vote uh, and cast their vote for the president uh, or the candidate who was certified by that state. Now, let me just address that first before we get on to that, that point about seating the electors. Um, electors have to be seated this day of December 14th that has come to be the day when they always go and vote. That's not carved in constitutional stone. And what really matters is who's sworn in on January 20th. If some earth-shattering piece of evidence comes to pass uh, prior to that time, these certified elections could easily be decertified. So all is not lost. If someone comes forward, if they have smoking gun, more things like that video, which we saw in, um, uh, in Georgia, and now there's audio to go along with it, uh, these things can be undone. 
So please do not lose hope. Until the 20th, you know, after the 20th, when somebody's actually sworn in, it's admittedly, uh, I think, an impossible lift because now he has the levers of power at his or her disposal. But prior to that time, uh, hope is still alive. And so let's deal with this. In a one-page decision, they simply denied the plaintiff's petition to the Supreme Court. Judge Alito was the one who was responsible for bringing that to the court. Now, why? Because apparently the way it works on the Supreme Court, you have nine justices, you have 13 circuits. That means the 50 states and the various district courts, like New York has the Southern District of New York, and then there's the Eastern District of New York headquartered in Brooklyn. Uh, These districts all fall under a circuit. Now, New York is in the Second Circuit. Pennsylvania is in the Third Circuit. And Justice Alito, who originally hails from Jersey, which is also in the Third Circuit, he is responsible for the Third Circuit. So he was the one who the petition was pitched to, and he brings it to the court, and now it's been rejected. However, in case you haven't also heard, the state of Texas has filed a lawsuit against these other swing states on the basis of the argument that the changes they made in their states to allow this massive mail-in voting and this double standard for evaluating the validity of mail-in votes versus those that were cast in person by a real person that you could see um, violates the Equal Protection Clause and, and, and other issues, issues like these fraudulent votes that they allege to have been committed have effectively diluted the votes of all those people who voted in states that held fair and corruption-free elections and diluted the electoral votes of the state entities themselves that send their electors to go and cast them. Now, that seems to me to be a very strong argument, and I want to hear more from uh, Professor Emeritus Alan Dershowitz of Harvard to see what he thinks of that, because there is a certain wisdom here. Look, first of all, let's understand what the Supreme Court is. The Supreme Court does not conduct trials. In fact, the only thing remotely reminiscent of a trial that any Supreme Court justice gets involved in is the impeachment of a president. When Bill Clinton was impeached, we saw saw then-Chief Justice William Rehnquist presiding over the impeachment in the Senate chamber. When they tried to impeach Donald Trump, we saw Chief Justice Roberts presiding over the impeachment. That's about the closest thing to a trial that any Supreme Court justice gets involved in. So what does the Supreme Court do? A Supreme Court is the ultimate appellate court. It's the court of last resort. They make decisions on matters of law with respect to decisions made by courts below them. District court, every district court decision in federal court can get appeal to the circuit court. That's an absolute right. Whether you get an appeal heard by the Supreme Court from the uh, appellate court, that's another matter. Now, appeals from a state court, the top court of a state, can go directly to the Supreme Court if I remember my procedure correctly. I could be wrong on that, but it's, it's immaterial for our discussion. The thing you need to know is that trials are not held in the Supreme Court. And that's problematic 
to the extent that I think a trial is necessary in order to fully um, flesh out the issues that have been alleged here. Uh, but if a constitutional claim can be made, while the Supreme Court cannot conduct a trial, and while they cannot uh, investigate these matters that have been alleged, if a credible case is made that the, the votes of other states and people within those states have been diluted by what seems to be, in the court's opinion, uh, convincing evidence by a preponderance of the evidence that there is some infirmity in the way those elections were conducted in those states, then the Supreme Court could order those results decertified. And since there is no time to hold a new election, the Supreme Court could then direct that the Constitution be followed, or by default the Constitution would be followed, and that is the House of Representatives would make the pick. And that doesn't mean that every representative in the House gets a vote, because there's a Democratic majority, and that would hand the election to Biden. No. Instead, each state gets one vote, because each state, as an entity, has equal footing with every other state. Even the small state of Vermont, with its 400-some-odd thousand inhabitants, gets only the same number of votes as the massive state of California with its 40 million people, because it's an equal partner in this federalized system that we have. And the determining vote is who controls that state's legislature. Currently, 38 states have their legislatures controlled by the Republican Party. So it's no secret as to who they would vote for if it comes to that. Now, why did they turn this case down? Well, like I said, because of the other cases there. And I don't think the Supreme Court wants to be in the position of having to hear every individual case that comes up. The state of Pennsylvania, we have a case coming from them. The state of Michigan, a case having come from them. A state of, uh, of Wisconsin, a case having come from them. Maybe Arizona, maybe Nevada. We all have these individual cases. Now, this and any decision by the Supreme Court, they're not deciding the case on the merits of the corruption. They're deciding the case on whether or not they think some facet of the U.S. Constitution relevant to these elections has been violated. So even if the Supreme Court were to rule in favor of these states and say, no, nothing has been violated, it, the individual state, if the state of Nevada, for instance, if Trump can prove to the satisfaction of either the Nevada legislature or a Nevada court that 40,000 people did in fact vote twice, as his lawsuit in Nevada alleges, and they have those names, and they can prove that they voted twice, those votes have to be thrown out. And we already know that the overwhelming majority of them are for Joe Biden. And I don't think the Supreme Court would hear that case because there'd be no constitutional issue for them to hear. That would be a matter completely of state law. And I think they would turn it down much in the same manner in which they turned down this appeal coming from Pennsylvania. But that wouldn't invalidate that decision by Nevada. And the state of Nevada would therefore go to Trump. So I think what the Supreme Court uh, always looks to do is to get one case, one case that covers all bases for them. So now you've got the state of Texas joined by the state of Louisiana, and I suspect other states will join in. Uh, uh, if that happens, that's the case they want to hear, because they can make this sweeping decision about this constitutional issue and potentially cast into doubt 
the elections in all of those states in one fell swoop, the state of Wisconsin, the state of Michigan, the state of Pennsylvania, the state of Georgia, and maybe, uh, by extension, the states of Nevada and Arizona. So far from this thing being over, this thing may very well just be heating up. And this was, it was a little disappointing to people, I know, because a Pennsylvania judge last month said that the plaintiffs would likely succeed, uh, the district court judge, uh, when she was a state judge, when she blocked the state from certifying the results. But the Pennsylvania Supreme Court uh, struck down that injunction by that judge a few days later, and that's what put us on this path of going to the U.S. Supreme Court. But I do not think that the United States Supreme Court is done with this. In fact, given the massive amount of evidence that was presented by Rudy Giuliani and company, I really don't see how they could remain silent on such a massive issue. I mean, they weighed in on Florida, for God's sakes. You're trying to tell me that with these allegations affecting potentially as many as six states, they're just going to be silent on this issue and say nothing? Let me give you the mathematics of this. You know, my father, I think I mentioned this once before on the show, my father, rest in peace, was a big proponent of mathematics. I always had trouble with math, and I now regret late in life that I didn't focus more on math and less on English and speaking, even though I enjoy both. Um, math is a finite science. Two plus two always equals four. You can't change that, and you can't challenge it. Einstein was able to prove on paper with math things that were proven later with actual experiments. But math proved it. Math is exact. And the former CEO of and founder of Overstock.com, uh, those of you unfamiliar, that's a place where you can go and you can buy items that have been uh, all basically located in one central marketplace that are, that are overstock from different companies. And you get really good deals on stuff. It was a great site. It was a great business idea. Well, he apparently is a big libertarian, Pat Byrne is his name. And he's been on the trail of Dominion, Dominion voting systems ever since there was a questionable election in the state of Texas in 2018. Now, Dominion is no longer allowed in the state of Texas. And he's been hot on their trail ever since. And he's hired a, a bunch of former military people and intelligence people who do tremendous mathematical and forensic analysis. And he explained it this way. And I think this is something that those of you out there who don't have a degree in math, and I don't, can easily understand. And so if you are a person that for some reason is in earshot of my voice, and you're not a person who's a Trump fan, and you think I'm just a quack, or all of us who think this is going on are quacks, I want you to consider this. Because I heard somebody calling into the Rush Limbaugh show the other day who was speaking to Mark Stein, basically trying to act all scholarly and so forth with his, with his very, very, you know, mousy voice. Well, I think what happened is that, you know, all of these voters that, that mailed in and they were counted after the Trump votes, and this, this is why you saw that spike, and uh, I really don't think there's any fraud. Look, that's just a shill. He's a plant towing the company line. Let's look at the mathematics of it. Pat Byrne explained it this way. Let's assume that we have a precinct, a massive precinct, in a downtown area in Detroit, someplace that's heavily populated. And we have 100,000 votes that are counted in that precinct, or mail-in votes, however you want to look at it. 
And in that precinct, let's just assume 100,000 votes total, and we know it's an overwhelming Biden precinct, that at the end of the day, and there's no fraud, there's no fraud, when we count the votes up, 94% of all the votes are for Joe Biden, and only 6% are for Donald Trump. Are you with me? Okay. So since we made a nice round number of 100,000 votes, that would mean that 94,000 of those votes were cast for Joe Biden, and only 6,000 of them were cast for Donald Trump. Even in that extreme scenario, the odds of having 10,000 ballots counted in a row, all of them being for Biden, without a single one of those 6,000 Trump votes showing up, is essentially mathematically impossible. And I say impossible because, you know, it's not impossible per se, because there is a, the slimmest of margins, but the chance, if you had to put it in mathematical terms, is something like one in over a billion of the odds of that occurring. In other words, if you didn't have this situation where 94,000 out of 100 votes went for Biden and 6,000 went for Trump, and you and I were sitting there and we're tasked with taking all these ballots and scanning, into them, scanning them into the machine, it wouldn't be unreasonable or unusual for us to get, say, 80 or 90 votes in a row for Biden and then a Trump. 100, 120, 150 for Biden and then a Trump. Another 100 for Biden and then a Trump. 1,000 for Biden and then a Trump. Very, very unlikely. 10,000 for Biden and then a Trump vote? It's impossible. And as impossible as it is, this impossible thing would have to have happened in several places, in multiple states, on the same day. That, the odds are in the trillions to one. It could not have happened. 10,000 ballots being counted at a time with not a single vote for Trump happening in Atlanta, Georgia. 10,000 ballots all for Biden, not a single one counted for Trump, and no down ballot races, by the way, checked off, happening in Philadelphia, in Pittsburgh, in Milwaukee, in Detroit, all on the same day? It can't happen. Mathematically, anecdotally, the fraud is provable. The irregularities, the abnormalities is provable, and it cannot be denied because math can't be challenged. Just because that fat little ball guy from CNN uh, says it's baseless and that it's fraudulent doesn't mean anything. He's a little dweeb. He'll be the, you know, I laugh when I hear these people talk. They're the first ones that the people from the communist China are going to be looking for when they try and take over. They're the first heads that would be lopped off. Little dweebs like that. So don't lose heart. And don't believe that this thing is over. Eventually, the Supreme Court, I felt, was going to have to weigh in on this. But I also feel, and I understand logically, and you should understand it as well, that they weren't going to make a mockery of the system and a mockery of the court by weighing in on four or five different state cases, all dealing with this election. 
it's logical to assume that if they are going to weigh in, and again, I think it would be a, a terrible blow to our democracy if they don't weigh in, um, if they are going to weigh in, they're going to weigh in definitively and with one case that allows the broadest reach and the broadest decision-making possible to resolve this issue. And that's the case that's being filed by Texas and being joined by other states. And that case, I understand, has been docketed and will be heard by the Supreme Court. So this thing is not over, despite what CNN tells you. Now, before we check out, though, today, we'd like to cover a few local matters, because things are now heating up very interestingly in the state of New York, my home state, where Il Duce, Benito Cuomo, is on a campaign to once again shut down restaurants. But interestingly, gyms and salons are not going to be subject to this shutdown like he had once before, because now he's saying that gyms and salons are not major spreaders. Isn't this interesting? After weeks of claiming, I'm reading from a site here on WHEC 10 News in Rochester, New York. After weeks of claiming that gyms, hair salons, and barbershops were among the top spreaders of COVID-19, Governor Andrew Cuomo changed his tune on Monday. That would be yesterday. At a press conference briefing in New York City, the governor said that the CDC is more concerned about indoor dining and that gyms and salons are not major spreaders. Those comments come less than two weeks after Governor Cuomo had the following exchange with News 10 NBC investigative reporter Jennifer Luke. Or is it Lukey? I'm not sure. I think it's Luke. The reporter. Governor, the health commissioner here in Monroe County has said that they have not contact traced a single case of COVID spread back to a gym hair salon, or barbershop. Yet today, as we go into the orange zone here, those are the people most impacted. I asked you about this on a phone call last week, and you pointed to national statistics. But I guess my understanding of the micro-cluster micro zones is that they drill down locally into what's causing the spread here. If that is not causing the spread, why are these people the most impacted? Where do they say the spread of coming from, Governor Cuomo? Luke, what you said, living room spread, small gatherings in private homes. Governor Cuomo, yeah, well, every expert says the same thing. Every state, Democratic states, Republican states, most states, big states, Democratic experts, Republican experts. The highest rate of spread are restaurants, bars, gyms, and home gathering. The situation where you have the least control is home gathering. Bars, restaurants, gyms, you can enforce... Those are the four major spreaders. So you do what you can with those four major spreaders. Then the governor deferred to his top aide, Melissa DeRosa, secretary of the governor. You are closing businesses where there is a greater chance of spread by virtue of the closeness of people that are working with one another, that are doing in-person services, or again, like in the gyms where you're breathing more heavily, you're closer in contact with one another. But the reporter, but they're following your restrictions that you put in place for them to reopen, which would have alleviated what you're talking about. Back to DeRosa. The restrictions are great, and we saw at moments through this, through months and months and months that the restrictions have worked, but what you're seeing in these areas with the spikes here is a greater prevalence of community spread. Now, this goes on and on, this exchange, but the bottom line is, after going through all of this and defending these closes, 
<laughs> closures, rather, of the gyms and salons. Now he comes out of the blue because the CDC says, ah, it's not a big spreader. Well, where the hell did this evidence come from? You see, ladies and gentlemen, what I'm trying to, I've been trying to tell you all along is this thing is being so eccentrically imposed. And now we have the Red Chinese, and uh, these are the people that invented it, so I guess they would know. They're saying that asymptomatic spread is virtually impossible. So even if someone has it, the chances of them spreading it, if they're asymptomatic, is slim to none. So it's only people with symptoms. Now, people with symptoms are people with fever, people who are coughing, people who are not feeling good, they're feeling run down. You think these people are going to gyms? You think they're going out to get their hair done? They're probably not doing anything except staying at home. So this, again, is the first pandemic, which I, I still dispute that it's a pandemic, where we're quarantining the healthy uh, and not focusing on quarantining the sick. So now he's going to knock down the restaurants. Well, it seems to me if gyms and salons where you're in close contact with people are not major spreaders, how are restaurants major spreaders? You're going to dinner with the people you came with, so you're in close contact with them. The staff spends very little time with you to take your order, and then they leave. And they bring you food, and then they leave. You go to get your hair cut, the barber, he's hovering over you for at least 15 minutes straight while he's doing your hair. Maybe in the case of some of these women's hair salons where the uh, procedures are a little more elaborate than for the average haircut a man gets, they're in close contact with you a lot more. Yet they're saying that's not a spreader. So there's no consistency here. But the governor is on the verge of closing restaurants once again. He's going to cancel all in-person press conferences. I don't know why. Uh, we don't really care. But he's thinking about shutting down New York dining. It was reported on NBC News that uh, Cuomo warns that the strain on hospitals may force total shutdown, New York City dining on the brink. And there's a very interesting article out on Grub Street, uh, posted about six hours ago, posing the question, have New York bars and restaurants passed the point of no return? Uh, I live in the city of New York. I live right in Manhattan. And I'm telling you, these people are on the brink. And when they go out, they're not coming back. And neither are the jobs of the people they've employed, because they're going to have no place to work. I don't know what this guy thinks he's doing up there in Albany by, by engaging in this actually almost a, a vendetta, a campaign against restaurants. You know, it reminds me almost of stories I used to hear from my friends in the police department. The police department in New York was always a necessary evil, according to the people in the city government. They were batted around by the politicians. They didn't want the police really enforcing, enforcing the laws. And you'd almost sense that on the part of some of these chiefs that these same people who wouldn't have the, the chutzpah to tell you to go out and take action and do something would unhesitantly use all of their administrative powers to bring to bear on the members of the police department. The police department seemed more concerned with policing the police than they were with policing the public. And it looks like this is what the governor's doing. He can only do so much to us in our homes, 
having Thanksgiving, telling us we can't have more than 10 people there. You know this this hypocritical bastard, Il Duce, had more than 10 people at his household stuffing their faces like the Gavones that they are. He invited his 89-year-old mother. He wasn't concerned about her getting COVID. But he wants to tell you that you can't have more than X number of people and you can't have people from other households at your home. And if you're going to remove all the reasons for living, why bother living? We're all going to hunker down forever and hide? There's no money to pay us all to pay us all to be on the dole. And not all of us want to be on the dole. I don't. I want to earn my own keep. I don't want anything from the government. Because the more the government gives you, the more you're dependent on the government for, the less of a free person you are and the more of an economic slave you have become. And that's exactly what they're doing. The best way to advance socialism is to simply break everybody out financially. And these closures being implemented on the thinnest of evidence, this threadbare COVID-19, which is not even a pandemic. It's just a a man-made virus. This is what it is. It's a man-made virus. It's a COVID virus, like the common cold, but it's a little different. For some people, it's had some long-term effects like loss of sense of smell or taste. But for the majority of people, what this is, is a virus that has been invented by man in a Chinese lab, communist lab, which was unleashed upon this country and the world. And it has the practical effect of infecting a lot of people because no one has any immunity from it. And 98% of the people that infects are completely asymptomatic, don't even know they have it. And the few people that does infect that have symptoms, the symptoms can range from very severe to ultimately resulting in death. But the number of people that result in death is about 1%, which puts it on a par with the flu in terms of lethality. It's nowhere near the top of the list of of lethality. And looking at it even further from the numbers we have in this country, where we have very good numbers, 94% of the people who do die, which is a very small percentage of the people who actually get it, because we know 11 million people have been tested positive for it, but because a lot of people don't get tested at all because they're asymptomatic, the CDC now estimates over 110 million Americans have been infected with it. So 270,000 people dying out of 110 million people infected does not bespeak to, of, a, of a very lethal disease. And of those 270,000 people, 94% had two or more other comorbidities. Only 16,000 people, 6%, can be deemed to have been otherwise in good health. And even that, we can't rely on as far as the, uh, the good health part, because you know many people drop dead suddenly, and the day before they drop dead, they too would have been deemed as being in good health. And then they do an autopsy and find out the man had a coronary condition. So many of these people who were in good health could very well have been people with, a, with an undiagnosed pre-existing condition. But let's assume that none of them had such a condition. Only 16,000 people out of 110 million people who were perfectly healthy died from this virus. So it begs the question, what the hell are we doing to ourselves and why are we doing it if it's not about manipulating the population? So when someone tells you, oh, it's about death, about, it's not about death. Whether you realize it or not, we accept death. 
in this country on a regular basis, and we don't do anything about it. 64,000 people die every year of the flu, more or less. We don't lock down or change our lives because of the flu. We take a best guess at a vaccine that we think the strain is going to be. We tell you to get it, and that's all we can do. 50,000 people die in American highways every year in cars and trucks. There's no major movement to ban cars. Oh, there may be a move to ban um, gasoline-powered cars based on pollution. But they still say buy an electric vehicle. And I got news for you. You get into an accident with an electric vehicle like a Tesla, you're going to wish you weren't born. Those things weigh a ton. The battery weighs over one ton, all that lead. A Tesla SUV weighs over 6,000 pounds. It weighs 2,000 pounds more than my pickup truck. When that thing hits you, it's going to do a lot of damage. Even the car weighs about 4,000 pounds. The car weighs as much as my pickup truck. So people die, automobile accidents, 50,000 a year. Anybody, you hear anybody talking about banning cars, saying we shouldn't drive? For reasons of death and accidents, not because of pollution. Nobody's suggesting it. These are trade-offs. We accept a reasonable amount of death because we know that death is a part of life and we can't escape it. Someone is going to die from almost every single activity that we can engage in of a dynamic nature. And we understand that within reason, a certain amount of death is something we're going to have to accept because the, the uh, trade-off, the price to be paid for having no death is the complete elimination of those activities. And the complete elimination of those activities visits upon us a world which will cause a host of other problems. How many lives are saved by virtue of the fact that we have cars, that we can speed things to different places, that a doctor can hop into his car and get into an emergency room or get into a, a hospital to, to visit a patient and, and perform a surgery that only he can perform because he has the alacrity with which to get there, the speed of transportation. There are trade-offs in life, ladies and gentlemen, and the trade-off we're being sold on right now, that we have to give up our way of life, we have to give up our income, we have to give up our livelihoods, we have to give up freedom, we have to give up everything, all to protect ourselves from a disease which kills 1% of the people that's exposed to it, is ludicrous. That's what you need to tell your local representatives, that's what you need to tell your state representatives, that's what you need to tell your federal representatives because they're preparing to low it down on you like you have no idea. The vaccine we have thanks to President Trump. If he remains the president, that vaccine will be used in a practical, compassionate way. It will be given to the people who are most at risk first and other people in descending order. You can take it if you like, you don't have to take it if you don't like. You get Biden as president, he's already in bed with the big billionaires like Bill Gates who have a vested interest in producing and selling this vaccine to get richer than they already are. You'll have to take it. And even if they don't make it a law, even if they don't go that far to push you because they don't know if they can push people that far without getting a rebellion, they'll twist you. They'll say, no, you don't have to take it. But I'm sorry you can't get on a commercial flight unless you have proof of the vaccine. You don't have to take it, but I'm sorry you can't take Amtrak. 
You don't have to take it, but I'm sorry. You can't go into certain places without it. You can't go into a movie theater because we're going to regulate the places you go. We're going to find movie theaters if they let anybody in who can't prove they had a vaccination. We're going to find Broadway shows if they let anybody in who can't prove they have a vaccination. We're going to find restaurants and suspend their liquor licenses unless they can demonstrate that you prove to them to their satisfaction that you've had the vaccination. They're going to try and strong arm you. You know what I say to that? Fine. I'm not flying anywhere. I'm not going to see any shows. I'm not going to any restaurants. I'm going to go to my private club that I belong to because it's a private club. And they can't stop me from going. I pay membership. And if I have to, I won't go to the club. You want to beat these people back? We're 73 million strong, the people who voted for Trump, plus our children, our extended families who weren't capable of voting. And if we start using all of that economic power to support alternative businesses, alternative news, alternative ways of getting information, like this podcast, for instance, we can bring these people to their knees. You don't think Fox News is hurting right now? You don't think they've suffered from a, a tremendous flight in their audience? I put my money where my mouth is. I don't watch Fox News anymore. I'm, I'm weaning off it. I mean, I watch certain shows of certain hosts who are still true to the cause, like Hannity or Tucker Carlson or Laura Ingram or Maria Bartiromo, who I love. But I don't watch the regular news anymore. I don't listen to their updates. I get my news from alternative sources like Newsmax, OAN News. I canceled my subscription to the Wall Street Journal and subscribed to the Epic Times because they report news that the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times won't report. The New York Times, the old gray lady, all the news that's fit to print, that's not their motto anymore. It should be all the news that we see fit to print. All the news that we think you should hear. Not all the news that you need to hear. Certainly not all the news that's taken place. So think about it. Keep your chin up. Things aren't over. In fact, I, things, I think things are just about reaching a fever pitch. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury.